The Midday Report. I'm Mandy Wiener. Keep listening as we round up the key stories affecting your world with interviews with newsmakers, in-depth analysis and eyewitness news reporters on the ground. The Midday Report. Good afternoon. Welcome to The Midday Report on 702 and Cape Talk today. It's Barbie Day today. Barbie's coming out today. Do you care if if you are going, if you're going to watch it tonight, if you are reliving your childhood, if you're taking your children, let me know if you're excited about that. I saw the launch last night and the photos look pretty cool uh, for those people who were reliving their childhood. Uh, so let me know. Send me a WhatsApp voice note. 072-7021702. 6-7-1-5-6-7. I was never really a Barbie girl, but my daughter's a Barbie girl, so I can relate. So there's going to be stage four load shedding until tomorrow. We weren't supposed to have stage four. It was supposed to be downgraded to stage two during the day today, but there is a higher than anticipated demand. Uh, also some issues with some various power stations as well. So stage four load shedding to be implemented from 10 o'clock today. Until 5 o'clock tomorrow, ESCOM announced that a short while ago. So, you know, you can plan around that. And then some big breaking news story, uh, big breaking news that's just come in. The government has agreed to execute the International Criminal Court arrest warrant against Russian President Vladimir Putin if he ever sets foot in South Africa. We now know that Vladimir Putin is not coming to South Africa for the BRICS summit. But the DA persisted with its court matter today. Lindsay Dentlinger, EWN reporter Following that breaking news story for us. Lindsay, good afternoon to you. Tell us what has just been decided uh, in that court in Pretoria. Good afternoon, Mandy. Well, very um, short and sweet um, by mutual agreement of the parties, uh, essentially noting the fact that, as you've pointed out, President, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin won't uh, be coming to South Africa. And then, very importantly, the second point the court noting that the Director General of the Justice Department has. As of Monday, uh, the timing is interesting, um, forwarded the request for an arrest warrant uh, for um, the Russian president to the National Director of Public Prosecutions. And that's a procedural thing which had been argued on the papers as to who exactly would be responsible for executing such an arrest warrant. You will recall we spoke about this previously where the SAPS, for example, said they were not in possession of any kind of warrant. Uh, and so this process has really clarified what needs to happen. And essentially, the DA has forced government's hand to commit and uh, to their obligations mm. under the Rome Statute to execute uh, a warrant of arrest from the International Criminal Court. And importantly, a, a costs order as well. Government has uh, been uh, told to pay the costs of the parties in this matter as well. Uh, Lindsay, we now know that Vladimir Putin is not coming to South Africa for the BRICS summit. The DA choosing to persist with this matter regardless because it would be a precedent, uh, not just for Vladimir Putin, but for anybody who had an ICC warrant out for their arrest, I imagine. That is, was really the whole intention. Uh, I think maybe government thought that the DA would uh, not want to proceed given uh, once they've made that announcement that Putin was not coming to South Africa. But that was really the intention, the DA said, was to establish a precedent. So this is not only, they say, about uh, Putin, but about anybody who the International Criminal Court might request the, um, assistance from South Africa. We already know about that incident in 2015 mm-hmm. uh, where government chose not to act on an arrest warrant like that. And essentially this order will now 
um, put on the record what the process is that government uh, is forced to follow uh, if ever confronted with a situation like this again. And then, Mandy, uh, I mean, there was this issue of the president saying we would welcome a threat of war uh, on South Africa if we were to execute an arrest warrant like that. And that was really something that the DA wanted to ventilate uh, in court today. Of course, the matter now not proceeding, but DA leader John Cianhazen telling me a short while ago that this will essentially become the fodder uh, for attacking the president on the score in parliament. And so they're not going to let that matter rest in terms of government's view that uh, the country wouldn't act on an arrest warrant because they feared war. Uh, and he plans to take this up now in a parliamentary forum. Lindsay, thank you very much. Lindsay Dentlinger, EWN reporter, bringing us that breaking news story. It does seem as though we have certainly learned from the Omar al-Bashir episode, and we didn't want a repeat of that. So now, a government agreeing to execute the ICC arrest warrant against Russian President Vladimir Putin if he ever arrives in South Africa. We know he's not coming, but this very much is about the precedent now. And if we are going to remain uh, members of the International Criminal Court and the Rome Statute, then we need to abide by the law. And that means that we have to execute arrest warrants if people arrive in this country and there is an arrest warrant out for them. So the DA went to the Gauteng High Court today to force government to commit. Uh, As you heard there, the actual matter is not proceeding today. This order was handed down, an agreement was reached, so the actual matter not going ahead today. Government ordered to pay the costs as well. What do you think about that? Do you think this is the right call? Do you think that the DA did the right thing? And the DA has claimed victory already this week. Do you think they should be claiming victory again? On 702 and Cape Talk, this is the Midday Report with Mandy Wiener. Brought to you by NetBank Commercial Banking. Specialists who enable your business growth aspirations. Let's go to the Joburg CBD because engineers from the city of Joburg have now narrowed down to three the causes that they believe may be behind that explosion near the Bree Street taxi ranker earlier this week. We know that there was massive infrastructure damage, more than 40 people injured, one person killed. The city manager, Floyd Brink, saying a sewerage entry into the underground stormwater systems may have created an ignition of methane gas, two other scenarios as well, all relating to gas. Tobiso Gorba, EWN reporter, was out in the CBD yesterday uh, attending a press conference there, speaking to uh, residents as well. Tobiso, thank you very much for coming in. Uh, You spoke to to people in the area uh, who've been affected by this, who've described this gaseous odour that's still there. What are they telling you about their experiences? Yes, good afternoon, Mandy. I, I imagine um, a lot of people may have seen um, that video of that uh, of that incident um, of how it happened, or the CCTV footage of how it happened. It's mad. Uh, it's yeah. absolutely mad. The yes, footage. and that's exactly how people have described it. You know. Um, this happened on Wednesday afternoon, but even last night, uh, people were still in a matter of shock in terms of just how it happened. So we did speak to Annelisa Pisan. So he was an eyewitness. He was very nearby um, the scene. So this is how he described how um, everything unfolded. And so there were some people inside because the, the, road, the road was so busy as usual. People had no idea what's going to happen. So the taxis, they packed on top of each other. There were people. In, on, inside those taxes because they were not aware that uh, something like this is going to happen but it happened so the taxes uh, packed on top of each other the, uh, the road started uh, opening up when you go up straight there even now right now there's a smoke uh, coming out under the uh, under the ground you see 
you can see that I don't know maybe it's a big pipe under the ground just exploded up or see the power the pressure just uh, backs it out you see when you go up there you, you will see the smoke and you will smell the smell it's very sure yeah. even when you go there will become so dizzy at the same time so that uh, gaseous odour is still there at the moment. They're still trying to work out what actually caused this to happen to be so. But they have brought in experts as well to assist. Yes, 100%. And Mandy, you know, it's very important to, to mention that um, in terms of natural gas pipelines that run underneath Johannesburg roads, there's only one company that is um, sort of responsible for those pipelines, and that is Igoli Gas. Uh, now, I do have to mention that um, Igoli Gas has said that they didn't detect any sort of leaks from their systems. Now, Johan Lagrange is a uh, a civil and fire engineering expert. Um, is uh, he works now as a consultant, has over forty years of uh, experience um, in uh, in this uh, field. So he was brought in by the city of Johannesburg to assist with um, with this explosion site. Now he explained that um, even though um, all these pipelines do belong to Ugoli Gas, um, sort of gas distribution works the same way as water distribution. So in terms of get they distribute, but um, um, you know what the consumer does with it they're no longer responsible for that so um this is how he explained that you know um that ecoli gas may have not been responsible for this uh, explosion no uh, for the uh, ecoli thing what do you know yeah all that we say is, is um, if you m- measure the main pipes you measure the pressure and you can see the leak if if the leak is after the meter on the client side you can't see that the client's pipe is leaking. So what is happening here, a number of the pipes, uh, they use quality pipes, HDP, brand new pipes that was installed. On the client sides, they use, uh, in some places, old steel pipes. that They used to actually use the old um, uh, Jova gas from. And then they just connected it to the Ecoli side. If it's leaking there, you can't pick it up on their system. So before the meter, you can pick up a leak. After the meter, you can't. You don't know what that line is. Is he consuming it or is it leaking? You don't know. You just see the meter is running. And that is the difficulty to pick it up. So to be so it comes as no surprise to me now that this entire issue um, and the the cause and the, um, the the repairs is being politicized. I said yesterday on the show uh, that uh, a lot of this is caused by the political football that Joburg has become and all of this. You can see it playing out when Kabila Gwamanda is pushed to the side as the mayor and Paniazala Sufi has very much been taking the limelight. Last night you were at two different press conferences. Yes, yes, yes. So um, there's been joint uh, press conferences with both provincial and local leadership. But uh, something uh, strange happened um, yesterday when Paniazala Sufi held his own press briefing and immediately thereafter when his team walked out, um, the Johannesburg executive sits there and um, also have their own press briefing regarding the same explosion. Now, the MMC for Public Safety, Mkini uh, Twaku, who's uh, an EFF uh, councillor, but he is an MMC for Igoli. Now, he called uh, Banyaza Lisufi saying that um, when he was speaking to us, he said that Lisufi is politicizing uh, the matter and is trying to steal all the, ta- all the limelight from this explosion. So, there are obviously cracks uh, starting to show also between the relationship between local and provincial government. Now, in this kind of explosion, they do have to work together, especially when it comes to repair work and the financing of it. So we'll just follow that uh, to the end and see just how, um, how well they work together in terms of, um, you know, 
repairing mm-hmm. this uh, uh, disaster. Well, let's hope that uh, the repair happens, that they work together, that there's no misappropriation of funds. To be so Gorba, thank you so much uh, for that. doesn't surprise me at all this matter is now being politicized. I'm sure it doesn't surprise you either. And you can see it playing out before us with the various press conferences. Well, now we need to focus on the repairs and what's going to happen. Oren Singh, EWN reporter, uh, steps in and uh, takes over where Tabiso left off. Because, Oren, you were out this morning in the Joburg CBD having a look at that repair work that is happening there. Uh, so tell us what the latest is on the ground and has any work actually begun on the repairs or they're still looking at the cause? Mandy, I think uh, the main thing is they're still obviously trying to ascertain what the exact cause is as um, I'm sure a lot of people would have heard. The city's given us three sort of possibilities as, as to what could have caused this. But repair work I think is still pretty far off. Um, I think the main thing that they're trying to concentrate on doing now is to try and get the gas levels to the lowest possible rate that they can probably bring us. What does it smell like out there now? Um, there is a slight gas smell in the air, Mandy. Um, and this is the one thing that we're trying to distinguish between whether it was a gas smell or like a methane smell. So we're trying to figure out what sort of gas it was. Um, because if, if you look at Igoli gas and we're not saying it's them, but you know, their name has popped up and they've disputed and, and refuted claims that it could possibly be bit, their pipeline. They, they, on their website say they supply natural gas. And when you look up natural gas, what is natural gas? One of the things that is natural gas is methane. But a lot of the people that were at the explosion said they didn't get a kind of methane smell, which is like a rotten egg smell. They didn't get that. So when we were there today, we kind of got a lingering smell of like gas that you would have in a gas canister at your, on your heater or your stove at home. That sort of gas smell, a little bit different. But they're trying to bring the gas levels down before they can go in and ascertain what the actual damage is underground and do any sort of repair work. The, okay. the city did say in that press conference last night that they can't take in any heavy machinery. So heavy vehicles on that road can't be brought in, no heavy machinery due to the instability of the, the road structure. So they're having to do everything via manpower, which is mm. obviously going to delay the process in actually getting that road fixed. And is everything, um, has everyone been evacuated around that area? Are businesses closed? What does it look like? So most of the businesses on the road are closed. There's a, a lot of police presence uh, on the road, as well as firefighters from the city of Johannesburg and JMPD. Um, but we did see a number of pedestrians walking past um, those gaping holes in the road this morning, peering over, looking through, and eventually police did uh, cordon off the road properly and chase everyone away. They have put barbed wire on the right-hand side of the road to uh, let uh, pedestrians who do need to access that road and walk through do so carefully on the pathway. Oren, thank you very much. Oren Singh, EWN reporter, who's just back from the Joburg CBD. So there's the full picture from you uh, from yesterday in the press conferences to what's happening today, uh, hearing from that uh, civil fire expert as well that has been hired by the city of Joburg to assist with the explosion site. They are still looking at the various scenarios of what may have happened, what may have caused it. And, of course, the politics of the situation. Now, it was inevitable. It was always going to happen, wasn't it? There was always going to be a fight between provincial and the city officials and the various parties. That's what happens when you're in these coalitions and everyone is playing everyone off against each other. The Midday Report. Good day, uh, Mandy, Norman and Pretoria. I think it is a great news uh, for the Pretoria High Court to make a declaratory order that uh, the South African government has a responsibility to the ICC constitution uh, and, and the, uh, the criminal court 
that uh, should uh, the uh, Russian president come to South Africa, they should lo- lock him up. And uh, I'm quite sure that the president Ramaphosa and the ANC, they, they can make a million policies, but uh, where, once they have signed the Roman statute, there's no turning back. Figilion Balula can speak with his big mouth, but there's nothing which they can do. They must just implement it. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I think that if we are going to be signatories to the Rome Statutes, if we are still committed to the International Criminal Court, then we have to uh, do what we need to do, what we're legally obligated to do, the Gauteng High Court today. Uh, and then order saying that government has agreed to execute the ICC arrest warrant against Russian President Vladimir Putin if he ever comes to South Africa. We know he's not coming to South Africa in August at least, but this is a precedent. So anybody who has an ICC arrest warrant out for them, like Omar al-Bashir as an example, uh, if they arrive in South Africa, they need to be arrested. The Midday Report. In the courts, the Senzo Miwa trial continuing again today. The musicians, Andy Kumalo, back on the stand today. She has been testifying this week about the night that Senzo Miwa was killed. She was under cross-examination. She's back on the stand today. Let's have a look at what's happening today with Nokokanya Mtambo, EWN reporter. Nokokanya, good afternoon to you. Thank you for your time. Uh, Zandi Kumalo has been questioned about Senzo and Kelly's relationship. But what is she being asked today? Good afternoon, Mandy. Well, it's yet again um, just rehashing what she recalls happened both before and after uh, the murder of Senzo Meiwa. But what we've seen today is just, uh, you know, sort of zooming into, firstly, an interview that she did with uh, one of the other broadcasters last year where she made some utterances uh, about the case. And this was when the first trial was still underway. She made remarks about, <clears throat> apologies, Mandy, she made remarks about, uh, you know, what was being said in the trial and you know, giving a bit more description about uh, what had happened, how it happened. And so um, one of the defense lawyers, Charles Amnesi, has just questioned that a bit more and what the intention of that interview was and the outcomes of that interview was. But beyond that, interestingly, just a short while ago, Mandy, um, you know, she was asked about the more minute details about the two intruders that came into the house in 2014, um, the details about what exactly they were wearing, uh, you know, and the colors and so on. And though she says she can't remember those intricate details, uh, you know, again, she only remembers the height and sort of the complexion, uh, you know, and what they were wearing, but not so much the color. But now she says that she, among these five men that are being tried in this murder, could possibly uh, have some sort of suspicion as to who that second intruder was. We know that she's previously named the first intruder as accused number two, Bonga Danzi. But now she says among those five, she also thinks she has some suspicion about who the second intruder was, but didn't go as far as saying who she thought it was because she said, you know, it would be a bit unfair if she went solely on suspicion. So I think that's that's quite an interesting point that she made there, uh, uh, Mandy. But the, uh, the defense lawyer for the third accused has wrapped up his cross-examination and we're now sitting with the fourth defense lawyer who's cross-examining. Nokokanya, thank you very much. Uh, Nokokanya Mtambo, EWN reporter in court for us, uh, giving us an update on what is happening there. Well, let's listen in live uh, to the Senzo Miyua trial, and this feed is courtesy of the SABC. Uh, the previous day. Where have you met him? Open and out. And in Kelly Malberton. At Kelly's house in Malberton. <clears throat> on this day, 
That is a Sunday, the 26th of October, 2014. Did you communicate with him? That is long with one. Yes, I communicated with him on that day, but at times because I was busy, I would not answer the phone because I was working, I would maybe be on stage or didn't hear the phone. How did you communicate with him? Was it over the phone or through SMSs that you sent to him, vice versa, him sending SMSs to you? Both. Uh, at times he would call or at times he would SMS. At times I would also call and I would also uh, SMS. So I don't know which are you specifically referring to. That's what's happening right now in the Senzo Miwa trial, that feed courtesy of the SABC. The Midday Report. Hi, Mandy. Uh, Mandy, I would just like to say uh, congratulations to the DA for forcing the government's hand uh, on this uh, ICC arrest issue and for setting a good legal precedent on such issues. Uh, yeah, well done, and I hope the voters are watching. Thanks. The good day team is really here in Pretoria. It's a good thing that Putin is not coming here. The guy finances Wagner Group to destabilize the African uh, 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 countries. So good that is not coming and good for the DA to bring this thing to court. Thank you. Good day to you, Mandy. Kudos to the DA. Well done, DA certainly put the government in their place. The other thing that I want to make mention is uh, Ramaphosa's fruitless, futile trip to Russia to try and secure ongoing uh, grain uh, exports. Please, man, he thought nothing of Ramaphosa, that is Putin, absolutely nothing. Jeffrey Santon. Thank you very much for those WhatsApp voice notes. Uh, responding there to this breaking news story this morning, government agreeing that uh, it will arrest Vladimir Putin if he ever comes to South Africa. Developments out of the Gauteng High Court there. The DA going to court to force government to commit to arresting Putin. And as I said earlier, this is a precedent. It's not just about Putin, but it does now mean that government has committed. That actual court action not going ahead today. Instead, agreements reached by all parties and a cost order. Government is now obligated to pay for the legal application. It wasn't just the DA. There were amicus curia, friends of the court as well. So the DA is going to claim victory, and I think rightly so in this instance. The Midday Report. And sitting across from me in a very familiar studio, I'm a little bit nervous, John Robbie, to have you sitting across from me in Pull studio today. Pull the other today. one, Mandy. Pull the other one, Mandy. Lovely to be here. It's so nice to have you in. And uh, we're in our brand spanking new studios in Santon. So you haven't been here before. Unbelievable. And and I love the way when you come in, uh, all the stations are here. The first thing you see are the stations. The studios are not tucked away as they used to be on, on different floors. So uh, it's huge and, and very, very impressive indeed. And uh, even metaphor. 
few old dinosaurs who remember me. Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> so John Robbie's in studio today because he's here to talk about uh, his involvement uh, as the narrator being presented of the History Channel Africa on DSTV 186. Uh, two new shows coming out. The one is Great African Mysteries, and that is tonight yes. at 5 past 9. The other one is The Great African Escapes, which is next, next Friday. Week, 5 past 9 in the evening, yeah. So the mysteries is fascinating for me as a journalist, of course, because you cover uh, three things. The one is the uh, discovery of Homo Naledi at the cradle of humankind. Uh, Clement was there all morning today doing yes. a, a live broadcast from there. Um, the other is the Paul Kruger Millions and then the Haldeberg as well, which is something that has fascinated us as journalists for years. Let me tell you a little story about that, Mandy. I was playing golf recently with a friend of mine, similar age to me, how shall we say, a grey hair or some hair, and his son was playing with us. His son is a, a graduate of Stellenbosch University, went to a good school here, very bright guy, runs a business in London, but grew up in South Africa. And we were chatting and he said, what are you doing? And I told him about this television uh, adventure I'm on. And we were discussing the programs and he said, what's the Helderberg? Stop it. Never heard of the Helderberg. It's amazing. Never heard of Oceanus. Wow. as did many people in that age group. And I was staggered. And then I thought to myself, hang on a second, at that time in South Africa's history, if you think about it, the 80s to the 90s, there was only one story. Was there going to be a bloody civil war or is there going to be a miracle of the new South Africa? And all the other things that, that in a n normal country, and I use that, that term advisedly because South Africa wasn't normal in those days, uh, would be massive, massive stories that everybody would know everything about. It's almost as though they've sort of passed by, except mm -hmm. the people who are involved. So uh, when the History Channel came to me and said, would you like to get involved in this? I was absolutely thrilled. And some of the footage and the interviews that they have done, and I'm, I'm the front man for it, so I basically stand reading a, an auto cue, uh, but, I, but I have been involved as well. But some of the footage is going to tell these stories from people who are involved in a way that I think has never been seen before. So I'm very excited about it, and I, and I hope I'm not overselling it. Uh, and that's so interesting because um, often those of us with institutional memory who've mm. been in the media game for me not so as long as, as you, John, <laughs> I, say, I, say with, I say that with great respect, um, you know, we, we remember things that have happened and, yep. and younger generations do not. So I think, for example, of Justice Malala's book that has just come out about Chris Harney's murder Absolutely. and how it tells a story that we all know, yet we've forgotten a lot of it. Like the broadcast of Nelson Mandela to the country didn't actually happen on the Sunday night when we thought it did. And that's why history is so important. So telling the story of the Oceanus, for example, which you tell in Great African Escapes, is so important for a younger generation and for posterity. And you were on air on this radio station, right? When the Oceanus happened. Absolutely. Let, let me cut in there. Sorry, uh, Mandy. Uh, uh, looking at the footage, and we had a launch the other day, and they showed the uh, a couple of the not not all of the the inserts and we looked at the oceanus one and there was this lovely scottish lady who was there with her daughter and we tend to think of the oceanus as almost a, a humorous thing because nobody got killed the greek captain captain me first we called him we thought that was very funny at mm -hmm. the time he gapped it and so all the entertainers and the, the the magicians and the singers went up on the on the on deck as the ship was about to plunge under the ocean with thousands of people on board and there was nobody there now because nobody actually died 
it's gone down as a sort of humorous thing. When you see the footage and you listen to this lady talking about what happened, it is terrifying. And the lady's surname is Smith. Now, I don't know if you know that there is a very, very well-known legend in the broadcasting industry in South Africa whose surname is Smith, and it's his mum. But he goes by the name of Alex J. Oh, wow. And it's Alex J's mum and sister were on the Oceanus. And it is just staggering. But tonight, I want you to look at the cradle. And I know that, that Lee Burgess had a lot of publicity with the cradle. And everyone says, oh, I know about that. He's also got a book coming out, which looks well, of fabulous. Of course, yeah. good luck to him. But when you see the footage and you see what it is like for these, these um, uh, cavers who are also scientists who had to be small, because Lee Berger couldn't fit, and they went down there, it will blow your your, your, your socks off. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to the reaction. And obviously the Helderberg, very, very controversial. If anybody knows anything about the Helderberg, was involved, mm. because we know the controversy, we know the Margot Commission. Many people consider it a complete whitewash. Well, let us know, and let's see where it leads. And then uh, two of the other stories on Great Escapes is also the escape from Marshall Square, oh. which is a story that younger generations may not know about, but also so important if you look at Mosi Muller and Harold Wolpe and Arthur Goldreich and Abdullah Jassat. And then, of course, uh, the, the, the unbelievable story of L.B. Sachs' miraculous escape from a car bomb in Mozambique. Absolutely. And guess who was on his way to the beach? Dan Moyani, our old colleague, yeah. he was in exile. He was on his way to the beach. They were having a, a gathering of the beach in Mozambique, and the bomb went off. And, of course, Albie Sachs is, again, I mean, you, when you just listen to the man and the, the, the um, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for, the humanity of the man, it is extraordinary. But uh, Musi Mola uh, passed away during the making of the documentary. Of the, he was one of the people right. in Marshall Square. I wasn't aware of the details, but the escape from Marshall Square was the easy part. They then had to get out of South Africa. And they get out, these two, they split up, and the two guys of Indian extract got out of South Africa by dressing as Indian brides with all the full makeup and the full veils and everything, and they were stopped at two roadblocks. Now, they would have been taken, put back, possibly killed, who knows? So it's going back into the past, but again, it's about stories, it's about people, it's about, it almost takes you back to being at these various events, and uh, even talking to you, Mandy, I'm getting excited. Well, I just love the history of it, because um, that's, that's journalism, right? It's mm. the, you know, t telling stories for, but, but in for fairness, posterity. But in fairness, history, I hated history with a passion and dying at school, because it was dates, it was kings, it was queens, it was battles, it was dry, it was linear, it was logical. And and then I mean, have I got a minute to tell you a story? What 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 for you, John Robbie? What? Of course. I mean, what must I say? No, go ahead. Um, and I've told this story before. When I was a kid in Greystones, an island south of Dublin, I used to enjoy fishing. I was thirteen, and I was fishing a line of fishermen on the beach with this little boy, and there was this elderly guy beside me, and um, he was fishing away. We got chatting, and this was the day when elderly people could talk to young children without everybody else screaming and calling for the cops. He was just a decent elderly man and we talked about fishing and we talked about life and I discovered he'd been in the trenches in the First World War and he I said to him why did you why did what on earth made an Irishman do that and he said because it was adventure I was poor here was a chance to go to France and have bands uh, getting you on the, the the plane and people cheering and then of course the horrors of the trenches and then right at the end of chatting he opened his shirt and he showed me that his whole body was just scar tissue 
and he'd been blown up and nearly killed in the first. And it was the first time that I'd actually met someone who was involved in history, First World War, 1914 to 1918, who told me a story about it. And then, of course, the books of, of, of uh, Ken Follett and Bernard mm. Cornwall and people like that. Uh, I, I'm passionate about history now. I wish I'd studied history uh, at university because it's amazing. But again, this series and history is really about people. Mm. It's about people. It's about emotions, as well as the academic uh, analysis of what was happening. And I think that the team involved from Clive Morris Productions, and I must pay tribute to uh, uh, the, the people involved, Sean and Helen were the two ladies involved. And the director um, is a very well-known director of movies here called Dom Black, Dominic Black. And uh, the work they put in, I think they've captured the, the essence of it brilliantly. Well, John, uh, loved listening to you and always happy to listen to your stories. So thanks for coming in and, and telling us some stories. Uh, Great African Mysteries is on the History Channel tonight at 9 o'clock, just after 9 o'clock, and Great African Escapes, that's on next Friday as well. John Robbie, so, so lovely to have you in my studio. Lovely Thank to you. see you, Mandy. Lovely to be back at 7.02. The Midday Report. Hello, Mandy. I don't think it's about uh, who did this, whether it's the DA or not. Uh, That's besides the point. I think the point is um, abiding by the rule of law, doing the right thing, and just generally being law-abiding. There's just too much lawlessness in South Africa and bending the rules because it's so-and-so and that party and that party. Right is right and wrong is wrong. End of. Hi, Mandy. I'm, I'm just not convinced that gas is the cause. I think that we should turn this on its head and say, what if there was something else that caused the explosion, which caused a gas leak? Because everybody's not sure whether it's this or that. And the experts, I'm not sure which are the experts, who are they, which university engineers are involved. Mm, I'm not sure that we'll ever get to the bottom of this. How about if they're just people living in the deep, deep, deep tunnels in Johannesburg. Maybe it'll become one of the great mysteries that will feature on South Africa's Great Mysteries on the History Channel with John Robbie one day because we'll never find out what actually caused the gas explosion or we'll just never really know and it'll be the subject of speculation. That's what happens to many things in this country. So many WhatsApp voice notes are coming in responding to that interview with John Robbie. Awesome hearing you and John, uh, says one person on WhatsApp. Good to hear John. Can't wait to see him on the History Channel. Uh, fabulous having him in studio today. The Midday Report with Mandy Wiener on 702 at Cape Talk. Brought to you by NetBank Commercial Banking. See money differently. So before we get to the sport, and there's lots of sport to talk about today, is Scrabble a sport? Mm, I think some people may consider Scrabble a sport. So you know Stephen Grews, who always comes on air to talk to us about all sorts of international relations matter. He's the head of the African Governance and Diplomacy Program uh, at the South African Institute of International Affairs. We've had him on the station many times. Well, he's currently in Las Vegas at the moment for the World Scrabble Championships. And it starts this weekend. Who goes to Vegas to play Scrabble? Well, Stephen Grews did. And he sent us this voice note. Have a listen. Hi, Mandy. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm very excited for the World Scrabble Championships, which is going to be starting in Las Vegas, Nevada on the 22nd of July. I am one of three South Africans who will be playing. The other two are Gwen Ray, a photographer, and 
Ike Obidike, who is a chemical engineer. And we are going to be in the field of about, I think, roughly 150 players from 30 different countries. Very exciting. We'll play over four days, 32 games. And the winners, the top two, will go through to a final. And, yeah, I think uh, Africa has a very good chance at this championship. The Nigerians are particularly strong, and they have a very strong team that they've sent. Uh, the Kenyans are always dangerous. Uh, look out for the Pakistanis, not traditionally countries that one might associate with competitive Scrabble. And <clears throat> we really look forward to meeting people from all around the world. I know a lot of them from previous tournaments and through my Facebook and it's going to be an amazing spectacle at a big uh, uh, plush Las Vegas hotel, the Westgate. And uh, we will be competitive. I hope that the South Africans will do well. And we'll keep you updated as to how the tournament goes. Uh, there is competitive Scrabble in South Africa, which people may not know. We have clubs in Durban in Cape Town and Johannesburg. And uh, we also have players from Pretoria, from Heilbronn in the Free State. We run club days about once a week and tournaments roughly one a month. Uh, so it is easy to find us if you just search for Scrabble South Africa on Facebook or uh, on on Google. Uh, you'll, you'll find our website and how to get hold of people. But yeah, we really encourage as many people as possible to get involved. It's a great way to improve your spelling, your concept of language, your mathematics, uh, your spatial thinking, your problem solving. We're a very welcoming family. We've got people from all walks of life, uh, including mathematicians, medical doctors, travel agents, lawyers, and ordinary homemakers and students and uh, a whole variety of people from around the country. Competitive Scrabble has been going in South Africa for, for nearly 50 years, I think, even longer probably. And this year we celebrate the 75th year of the invention of Scrabble. So it's going to be great. Uh, you can probably uh, also follow us online if you search for World English Scrabble Players Association Championships, Westpac. You can follow the games. You can see how we're doing. And, yeah, we just really encourage people to be involved and to support us as we fly the flag. Stephen Grews, the head of the African Governance and Diplomacy Program, in this capacity as one of the three representatives of South Africa in Vegas for the World Scrabble Championships. The Midday Report. That's a wrap of the day's news. Don't forget you can catch the full Midday Report live on 702 and Cape Talk via our streams on YouTube and our website 702.co.za and capetalk.co.za. Keep checking in for updates from my colleagues at Eyewitness News. Till the next time, I'm Mandy Wiener. The Midday Report.